And my point is, if you start with trust, where you yourself are trustworthy and trusting, and you build a relationship of trust, a high trust team, a high trust culture, then your ability to do every other one of those things, you know, lead through change, build a team, be able to build a culture of inclusivity, you know, where we value our differences because we trust each other, where you can truly collaborate, where you can engage your people, where you can innovate and create new solutions. All those other dimensions of leadership go up. They are multiplied by the high trust dividend, just like they're diminished or diluted or taxed by a low trust dividend. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, lessons I learned as an ICU physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Way. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Well, welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Dr. Anthony Orsini, and I'll be your host again this week. You know, every week i just amazed about how many wonderful guests that I get to have and how many people that I get to meet. And I've really been truly blessed to have so many guests, and today is no exception. Today, we have Stephen M. R. Covey as our guest today. Stephen is the New York Times number one Wall Street Journal bestselling author, of the speed of trust. It's a groundbreaking and paradigm shifting book that challenges our age old assumption that trust is merely a soft social virtue and instead demonstrates that trust is a hard edged economic driver. The speed of trust has been published and has been translated in 22 languages and has sold over 2 million copies worldwide. He's also the co author of the number one Amazon bestseller, Smart Trust the defining skill that transforms managers into leaders. Stephen asserts that trust has become the new currency of the world and that having the ability to develop, extend, and restore trust with all stakeholders is the number one competency of leadership needed today. He passionately delivers this message and is dedicated to enabling individuals and organizations to reap the dividends of high trust throughout the world. Stephen brings to his writings the perspective of a practitioner as he is the former president and CEO of the Covey Leadership Center, where he increased shareholder value by 67 times and grew the company to become the largest leadership development firm in the world. A Harvard MBA, Stephen co-founded and currently leads Franklin Covey's global speed of trust practice. He serves on numerous boards, including the Government Leadership Advisory Council and has been recognized with the Lifetime Achievement Award for top thought leaders in trust. Stephen is a highly sought after international speaker who has taught trust and leadership in 54 countries. He resides with his wife and children in the shadows of the Rocky Mountains. Well, thank you, Stephen, for coming. This is awesome to meet you. Wonderful. Thank you, Tony. I'm thrilled to be on your uh, podcast. That's the short version of your resume. It's uh, very impressive. I hope one day I have one third of that. So that's pretty impressive. So thank you so much for coming. I'm so excited. I have way too many questions for you to do this in 45 minutes. 
But I want to get to your book and I want to get to this whole topic of trust because it ties into so much of what I do as a physician and what I teach to business and physicians. But before we jump into the book, I just want to know a little bit about you and I want my audience to get to know you. So who is Stephen Covey and how do you think of yourself and what are your goals in life and how do you want to be remembered? All that kind of stuff. So I'm often known for who my father is. <laughs> and my father is a Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. He passed away about eight years ago, but his legacy lives on through his work and through his books and the like. And so I feel a great sense of stewardship and responsibility being his son. I see it as a blessing. And rather than feeling like I need to carve out my own identity, I feel like I am standing on the shoulder of a giant. And I'm so grateful for what I've been gifted and given by having him as my father. So I'm very proud of that. And uh, so I'm partly known for that. And then I think I've tried to carve out my own niche really around this idea of trust and how trust is really not just some soft, warm and fuzzy social value only, although it is a social value, but kind of making the case that trust is an economic driver. It affects the speed at which we can move. It affects the cost of everything. And there's a compelling business case for trust. There's a compelling leadership case for trust. When you have trust in relationships, teams, organizations, it changes everything. And so kind of making that case for trust and then also talking about how trust is learnable as a skill, as a competency that's so important. And I feel like what my mission is and who I'm about is really about trying to increase trust in the world. Because if we're going to take on and solve these challenges and problems that we have, we can only do that if we're able to understand each other and collaborate and ultimately innovate. And we can't do any of that if we don't start with trust. And so trust is foundational to the kind of collaboration and innovation to move forward in society. And as you know, with your work on communication and difficult conversations, best communication happens when there is trust in relationships and trust between people. And someone could be a great communicator in terms of just skills, but if they're not trusted when they communicate, people don't believe what they're hearing, even though they might be very skilled. And so I see my kind of calling to try to help increase trust in our world largely, and then specifically to try to help leaders and people increase trust in their lives and in their leadership. And so that's my work. The Speed of Trust is about is trying to kind of make the case for why trust matters and then to show people practical tools and skills of how they can build trust on purpose intentionally. And that's what I feel like is my life's mission. Well, just as you were talking, three or four more questions popped in my head because I'm so excited to talk about this. And you talk about dividends and taxes. And I want to get into that later on because what you just said that really rang a bell is that people think trust is just, it's just something nice to have. It's a soft skill. And, and later we'll talk about the dividends and taxes because I really truly believe in that. I want to just jump back to your father real quickly. I'm a firm believer that we just don't pop up and be who we are, that there's genetics involved, but there's also stewardship and we have role models in our lives. And I'd like to think that I'm who I am because of role models. And you just had great parents. You talk about your parents in your book 
And your father wrote your forward in the first book, correct? Yes, he did. And you could tell how proud he is. <laughs> well, thank you. You really think that he had a big influence on you? And how much do you think that's who made you who you are? Yeah, I think it's immeasurable. <laughs> uh, it's hard for me to imagine a different world than without the kind of the the thinking, the guidance, the mindset my father gave me. So I think what my father did for me was kind of two things. One, obviously, as a parent, just feeling uh, loved, appreciated, valued for who I was as a person, regardless. And, you know, as a great parent, but also what he did for me professionally. He gave me a framework through which to, you know, look at the world through his work on leadership, seven habits and And that whole mindset has become kind of the software of my mind of how I look at things. And so it clearly influenced me that way. But also, he believed in me and affirmed me and helped me see how I might contribute and create value. And he believed in me maybe more than I believed in myself. And that's a gift. And hopefully, for most of us, if not all, we all have maybe somebody in our lives, and maybe more than one person who believed in us, who had confidence in us, who took a chance on us, whether it be a parent or a friend or a leader or a coach or a clergy person or someone at work, but someone that believed in us and had more faith and confidence in us than maybe we had in ourselves. And in many ways, my father was that for me. And so it enabled me to kind of gain that in myself. And it really flows from my father's definition of leadership, which I think is quite beautiful. He said, leadership is communicating people's worth and potential so clearly that they come to see it in themselves. Wow, I like that. And that's what my father did for me. He communicated my worth and potential so clearly that I began to see it in myself. And that's a great gift. And I'm so blessed and grateful for that. Both you and your father tell the story of clean and green. And I think that's uh, what you're alluding to. Can you just tell people a little bit about that story? That's a great story. Yeah, it's a great story. And Long story made short is I was just a young boy, seven years old. My dad's trying to teach the kids responsibility. So he asked me to take care of the yard. And this is in the days before automatic sprinklers. So it was a big deal to go around and turn on the sprinklers and the like. And he trains me for like two weeks. And he says, all I care about is two things, green and clean. We want our yard to be green. We want it to be clean. And so he trained me on how to do this, take responsibility and how to you know, turn on the sprinklers and I had to do it so often and clean up, et cetera. Sounds simple, but I was seven. <laughs> this is a little kid. <laughs> oh. And he trains me and then he turns it over to me. He asked me, are you ready? And I said, I'm ready. He turns it over to me and, and I did nothing. <laughs> and I did nothing uh, like five days in a row during the height of the summer with scorching heat and the water and the lawn is shriveling up, yellowing all around us. <laughs> and we had neighborhood you know, barbecues over at our house and there's garbage everywhere. And it was anything but green and clean. And my dad was just about to kind of just take back the job thinking he's too young, but he stayed with it. And he said, you know, how's it going on the yard, son? Because we agreed that we'd talk about how it's going, walk around once a week on how things were going. And when we walked around, I looked around, I was so embarrassed because the yard was yellow and it was messy, not green and clean. And I remember saying to my dad, this is just so hard. And I began to break down and cry. And it kind of said, well, what's hard? You haven't done one thing yet. <laughs> but what was hard was me learning to take responsibility. He said to me, I'd be willing to help you if you'd like help. And I said, would you help? He said, yeah, I've got time. So then I said, well, dad, will you go around and pick up that garbage? 
because it makes me kind of want to vomit. I was kind of telling him what to do. Mm -hmm. And when I saw him doing that, it was at that moment I realized this is my job. I'm responsible. I'm directing him, not he directing me. And from that moment, the green and clean became written in my heart. And I kind of uh, rose to the occasion and took over that responsibility. And the rest of the summer, the lawn was green and it was clean. Now, my father will sometimes teach this. He used to teach the story to talk about win-win agreements and stewardship delegation. And it was those things, but I was a seven-year-old boy. <laughs> I didn't know what those words meant, but here's what I knew as a seven-year-old. I felt trusted. I felt my father trusted me. and I didn't want to let him down. You see, I was too young to be worried about money or status at the time, but I didn't want to let my dad down. And he trusted me. And, and I ultimately responded to that trust, rose to the occasion, developed some skills and took responsibility. And so it's really my first learning on trust. I didn't label it that at the time, but I realized later that I felt the trust and what it did for me, how it inspired me and made me want to rise to the occasion. And that's what trust does to people. To be trusted is the most inspiring form of human motivation. It brings out the best in all of us, whether we're seven or 70. We all want to be trusted. It makes such a profound difference on how we view the world. That's such a great story. And so let's go back to your book. And the first thing, if you want people to trust you, just in going along that line, you first have to have self-trust, right? You talk about that. You first need to have self-trust before you can have other people to, to trust you. Can you just expand upon that? Yeah. You're not going to sustain trust with others if you don't trust yourself, number one. So self-trust means trusting yourself, but also it means that you give to others a person who can be trusted. So it's smart to trust you. In other words, you're credible. You're trustworthy. It, you know, it's hard to have trust without trustworthiness. And so you're trustworthy. I call that credibility. And that is that you're a person of character and a person of competence. And really to have self-trust, to be credible, we need to have both character and competence. I mean, you come from medicine. You wouldn't go to a, you know, a surgeon. You want a surgeon to have both, the character and mm -hmm. the competence. You want to make sure that if they cut, they're good at it. They've got the competence. But you also want them to have character and to really recommend, do you really need the surgery? <laughs> you wouldn't want mm -hmm. someone without either one. You want both. And same with any work project. You want people to have character and competence to sustain the trust. And that's being credible. That's being trustworthy. So if you start with self-trust, that becomes the foundation for building then trust in relationships, trust on teams, trust in organizations. But too often we kind of skip that step and just kind of move right to the relationship without looking in the mirror and focusing on ourselves and asking the question, do I trust myself? And do I give to my teammates, to my partners, to the people I lead or serve a person who they can trust because of who I am as a leader, my credibility, my trustworthiness, my character, my competence. My next question, you talked about trust and trusting yourself. I'd like to have you give me some advice. So what I do as a physician, as you mentioned, when I teach workshops, I've really dedicated my career to training physicians how to build relationships. And because that's what medicine's all about. It's about that human to human connection. Physicians generally are not great communicators. Patient satisfaction and the patient experience is a big topic right now. And we know that when patients have a trusting relationship with their doctor, they are actually more likely to take their medicine. They're more likely to be compliant with their therapeutics. 
They're more likely to follow up. And 100%, they do have better outcomes, period. End of discussion. One of the things that I have to teach is how to build that trust in a five-minute interaction. You can say there's a lot of emergency room physicians. You come into the emergency room. I'm meeting you for the very first time. I have three to five minutes to build that trust. And I teach certain techniques. I'm really big on body language and showing competency. I call it being the expert in the room, but also being a genuine person. I'm sure you've had the same issues in, in a boardroom or when you're doing business. Any advice you can give to people to say, this is how you build trust quickly. You just meet somebody. You talked a little bit about how quickly people built either trust you or they don't. And I thought about the book Blink and Slices. When people walk in the room, they even instantly trust you. Any advice you can give to a physician or a business person, say you're just meeting somebody, how do you start off on a good note? Yeah, it's a great question because we all face it every day in our Mm -hmm. work and the like. So here's a couple of thoughts. What you can show perhaps in just quick interactions is that you're real, you're genuine, you're authentic. You're not trying to put on airs or try to pretend. And so coming in and just right out of the gates, whether you're a physician or business person, I've learned if you will kind of upfront declare your intent and declare yourself, here's who I am. And I'd like to build a relationship of trust. If we can trust each other, everything works better. So I'll try to model it. I'll try to go first and hold me accountable if I don't, but I'll do my best that I can because if we can trust each other, it's better for all of us. And if you're a doctor, you kind of already come in with the idea that there's some competence there by your training, Mm -hmm. your profession. And for a doctor, maybe the greatest need is to show that you have character, that you care. And so coming in and saying, I really like to help you and be of value to you and serve you. So let me listen to you. Let me understand, try to hear you out. Because my goal is to be of value, of help to you, of service. That matters to me. See, I'm declaring my intent. And in the process, declaring who I am, that I'm here to serve, to lead, to make a difference, to add value versus, you know, trying to self-aggrandize myself. It's all about me and narcissistic view. I'm just trying to show I'm a real person. I'm genuine. I'm authentic. The best way I know to do that is to declare yourself, declare your intent, open yourself up, be transparent, be authentic, be real. And trying to listen, trying to understand someone is a great way of kind of taking a next step on that. Let me hear you first. because It shows that I am who I say I am, that I care about you. And those are sometimes things you have a chance to do. There might be another setting where maybe your expertise and your competence is not as known, like it might be in medicine. And, and so coming in, and you don't want to come in and be braggadocio, but you might come in and say, I've got experience and a background in this. And my whole goal, again, is to you know, create value and to serve and to add value. And based upon my training and my experience, I hope that I can be able to do that. But if my main point is, if you will declare your intent, to another, and even declare yourself. I learned that from Doug Conant. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Of who you are and what's important to you and why. That way, there's no mystery in the relationship. And it also shows kind of a vulnerability that you're not trying to pretend. You're trying to be real and authentic. And that kind of is disarming for people. And they realize that this is a good person that's just trying to get to know me and help me 
in my problem. Help me in my situation. Help me succeed. And just being disarming by being authentic and real is a great way to do that. So it was Doug Conant. He was the former CEO of Campbell Soup Company. And they had a massive turnaround. They went from the bottom 10% in engagement of their people to the top 10% during his tenure. And not only in engagement, but also in performance, you know, dramatic turnaround. And he told me that in any new relationship, when he would come in and meet someone for the first time, he would try to declare himself saying, here's who I am. Here's what I'm trying to do to just be genuine, to just be real, to be authentic and to lead out with it and to take the mystery out of the relationship. And it was always about trying to, again, serve. And because we'd all be kind of embarrassed to declare self-serving intent, but if our Mm -hmm. intent is to serve, to create value, to build a relationship, to give back, that's a natural thing to want to declare. And then it just invites authenticity back. And it it helps accelerate the relationship of trust. So it's not easy stuff because if you you feel vulnerable, but it's in that vulnerability that helps you build trust faster than if people are wondering, this person is kind of still playing their cards close to the vest. Who are they? What's their agenda here? Instead, you're just open. Here's my agenda. I want to serve. I want to help. I want to build a relationship of trust. You don't know how happy I am that you said that you actually use the word genuine. For those people who read my book and I've gone to my workshops, I use an acronym called PROGRAM and the G is actually for genuine. It's be a genuine person. The acronym is uh, discusses communication. And if you're a genuine person, people tend to trust you, especially if you're a physician. As you said, a physician's come in with a certain level of competency. We want them to, number one, show that they care. So if you're typing on the computer while the patient's speaking, That's not putting the patient first. So you're losing trust right there. But by being a genuine person, by I'll tell you a quick story. My mother-in-law was at a hospital in New York, a very well-known hospital. The cardiologist told her that she had a clot, that it was inoperable. And my wife came home and she started to cry. And the cardiologist told her she should just go home and she's going to have a stroke because the surgeon went operate on her. So I made a couple phone calls and we agreed to meet the uh, head of surgery at this hospital, thoracic surgery. He came in and he started talking about how he avoids the traffic with his motorcycle in New York City. And he sat down with us and he spent no more than two minutes just being a genuine person. And then he said, well, we'll operate on your mother-in-law tomorrow. And being a physician, I said to him, well, the cardiologist said it was inoperable. And his response was, well, it is to most people, but for me, I'll be able to take care of it, no problem. And I think he wasn't braggadocious. We didn't think that he was cocky. We thought he was competent. And because he was first a genuine person, and I think that's what you're talking about. And, and Don't you agree? Tony, that's a beautiful illustration of exactly what I'm talking about. That by coming in and being genuine, real, authentic, right out of the gates versus pretending or trying to seem or trying to just be kind of narcissistic. It's about me, but rather here's who I am. I'm genuine. That builds a little bit of trust right out of the gates. People mm-hmm. reciprocate back. And then when you say, I can do this, I can help you, your discussion of your capabilities, your competence is in the context of the genuine relationship that you're building and the desire you have to help. So it's seen differently. It's not seen as I'm bragging. It's seen mm-hmm. as 
yeah, they really can help me like he says he wants to or she wants to. Yeah, if he came in on his phone and didn't make eye contact and didn't spend time and just said, I'll bring your mother-in-law into the OR tomorrow, we would have said, wait, hold on a second. I'm not sure I trust you, but he talked about his motorcycle and how he loves to scoot in and out of the traffic in New York City. And he became a real person. That took one to two minutes. So when he said, I'll operate on your mother-in-law tomorrow, no problem. I'll take care of it. We totally believed him. And guess what? He did an amazing job and she did really well. So let's shift over to business. And I've had several bosses in my life. And I mentioned this in a previous podcast. Some of them I'd walk through fire for. And if you were in a room and you said something bad about them, I'd be ready to fight you. I'd be really mad. I'd defend them to death. And others, what not so much. And I think that when I was reading your book, that's what I was thinking about is the ones that I'd walked through fire for had my back. I trusted them. They trusted me. I knew that if I did something well, they would brag about me and say, look at Tony, he's doing a great job. And they wouldn't throw me under the bus if something went wrong. So you talk about taxes and dividends. How important is it that we teach these leaders how to do this? Because otherwise they're going to get employee turnover over and over again. It's absolutely critical because just the example you gave, when you build a relationship of trust with somebody or as a leader, then it literally impacts how people interpret everything else that you're doing. They view it through that lens. And when you are both trustworthy, but also trusting. So the example you gave is that you trusted them and they trusted you. So we're really inspired by leaders who are not only trustworthy, but who are trusting. They're willing to extend trust to us. That really brings out the best in us. And we want to rise to the occasion. We want to prove that trust justified and we give it back to them. And when you have a leader like that, you're loyal to that person. You want to stay with them. They engage you. You want to contribute. You want to make a difference. Whereas when you have a bad boss and the very definition of a bad relationship is low trust. Exactly. You can't trust yeah. the person either because they're not trustworthy or because they don't trust me or anybody else hardly. Then that's something you want to avoid. It just sucks the energy and the joy. It slows things down. It takes longer because you got to compensate for that lack of trust. It is a tax and everything takes longer. Everything costs more when there's low trust in a relationship because you now have to check and verify and question and wonder and take all these steps to compensate for low trust. Whereas when there's high trust, it is a dividend. You move fast, low cost because there's a speed to trust. Nothing is as fast as the speed of trust when in a relationship, on a team, in a company, and you can put a value on it. In fact, there's overwhelming data that shows that high trust organizations outperform low trust organizations by about three times Wow! in economic performance, total return to shareholders, because they get greater speed, lower cost, greater creativity, greater innovation, greater engagement when there's trust. And when there's distrust, everything takes you longer, costs you more, but also You'll see less engagement of people, far more turnover of people, far less collaboration, far less innovation. And all those things are taxes. And we can't afford to pay those taxes. 
And mm-hmm. so when you view trust as an economic driver, not just a social virtue, suddenly it moves up on the hierarchy of why it matters. That it's not just that it's nice to have, like you said at the outset, it's a better way to lead. We get better results, better outcomes, better performance. And it's a, there's more energy and joy in the relationship. So it's kind of both the, the quantitative and the qualitative are higher. You know more about this than I do, but employee turnover costs a lot of money. And not every job that I've left, but most jobs that I've left, it's because I thought the manager wasn't trustworthy or that there wasn't a good relationship there. So that's what I love about this dividends and trust. Like you can get away with it for a short period of time, right? But sooner or later, the roosters are coming home, right? Uh, what's that saying? I can't forget. The-, <laughs> the, the hands will come home to roost. There you go. <laughs> so, but that's correct, right? You'll get away with it over a short period of time, but not long. Yeah, you won't sustain it, especially in today's environment where it's a new world. We got all this change hitting us, technology changes, work has changed. It's more collaborative and interdependent. And it's also being done increasingly remote, mobile, as well as in person. The workforce has changed. We have multiple generations, including millennials and Gen Z that have a whole kind of different expectation and they want to be trusted. And Mm -hmm. and then there's so many options and choices that if there's a low trust culture, that's kind of characterized by command and control, kind of the old style of leadership, command and control based upon low trust, that's not going to attract, retain, engage, or inspire the best people. The best people want to be part of a culture of a team where they feel trusted. And that brings out the best in them. And then it not only engages them, it inspires them. And they perform better because of it. And they want to become part of something great. And they tell their friends about it. And they tell others. And they become your greatest champions and advocates. Whereas you got a bad boss, a low trust relationship, you go find a better boss. You'll leave. Half of us have left companies because of a bad boss. And Mm -hmm. that's all based upon trust. And so the data is just overwhelming. High trust is a dividend that gets played out in multiple ways. Low trust is a tax. And you started our discussion, Tony, with this in medicine. When there's high trust with a doctor, you're more apt to follow their directions, their instructions, all the things. You get better medical outcomes. Mm-hmm. It's also a happier relationship. When there's low trust, you get lesser medical outcomes. And also it probably is more stressful, painful, exhausting, no fun. So that's true in medicine. It's true in business. It's true in life. And it's just a matter of kind of putting the, I call them the trust glasses, where you look at the world through the lens of trust and see how trust is impacting everything, not in small ways, in profound ways. And It's always been this way, but we've often never seen it. And I'm trying to get people a lens through which to view the world's lens of trust. And from my point of view, when I train physicians and nurses, almost all of them are very compassionate people. They want that trust. They haven't just learned how to communicate that trust. And they haven't learned how to make that relationship with their patients quickly. And it doesn't take long for me to teach them that. Three-hour workshop, couple sessions. and they get so excited when they see the difference, when they see the patient's eyes light up when they walk into a room because they're so happy to see them. So it can be taught. It's all tied into this communication. When you come in as a consultant to a business, 
So I guess there's two ways of looking at this now. Do we have to be careful about who we make managers? Because sometimes, as I always say, a lot of companies make the mistake of just finding the smartest guy in the group or the smartest woman in the group and make them the manager. Or do we take the manager and teach them how to build trust? Or do we just pick the manager that already exudes the trust, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, it can be both. You know, obviously, sometimes there's some people that are just natural leaders that know how to build trust, build relationships. And that's wonderful. And hopefully they're also good at getting outcomes and results. So we want both. We want the result. We want the relationship. We want the outcomes. We want the culture. It's not either or, it's and. Your point is also valid. Sometimes we tend to just promote the top producer that may or may not be really a good leader. They might technically know how to do it, but they might not understand really how to lead people and relationships. And sometimes they try to manage people as if they were things. (laughs) And the learning is you manage things and you lead people. And the moment you start to try to manage people as if they were things and be efficient with people, and manage them like things, then you'll tend to lose trust with them and everything will get bogged down. You'll start paying the taxes. And I've learned with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. So taking the time to build the relationship, yeah, it takes you some time up front, but then you build that relationship of trust, suddenly you move fast. When you don't take that time up front and try to just be efficient, not listen, not you know be genuine, not kind of build the relationship, all in the name of efficiency. I don't have time for any of this. Well, guess what? Everything you try to do takes you longer to do because they're wondering, can I trust this person? So with people, fast is slow and slow is fast. So, But I think it's learnable. I think these are things that you can learn to do as a leader. Some might be natural at it, but others can learn to, to model, to trust, and to inspire. And those are kind of the three key dimensions as I see it. Modeling, that you model the behavior. Trusting, you trust your people because of what that does. It's a great way to lead. And then inspiring, which is all about connecting them to why it matters, to meaning, to purpose, to contribution, as well as just connecting in the relationship alone can be inspiring, that you care enough to do that. And I think that's learnable, that you can teach how to do that and become better at it. And so when people ask, are leaders made, are they born? My answer is that they're reborn. Through their choices that they <laughs> make like that. And, and they can learn that and get good at that. I've trained individually over 5,000 doctors mm-hmm. and we use improvisational role-playing in different ways. And then I can't even count how many workshops in other ways, but with the improvisational role-playing, we take doctors, we put them in difficult situations, we videotape them, we talk about their communication skills. What I have found is about 15%, just what you were saying before, about 15% of the people that go through these exercises just knock it out of the park. I mean, they walk into a room, they light it up. If they're giving tragic news to a patient, in this case, they're actors, they do it in the most empathetic way. They're just naturals. And some of them are right out of medical school and some of them are older. There's about 10 to 15%, and I want your opinion on this too, that maybe I could train forever and they're just not going to get it. But the other 70% really want to learn and are teachable and get excited when you tell them, do this and do that and try this and try that. And then they try it and it works. Is that your experience too, that there's some that just can't be trained, but most of them can? Yes, it is. Absolutely. That most people 
can get there because it's character first. It's who you are, that genuineness. And if people have that, your intent matters more than your technique. Now, the technique does matter as well. You can kind of learn how to do it better, but your intent matters more. And when you start with that, and if people say, I care and I have good desires to do this, they can get there. They can learn better practices, better skills, better ways to communicate when their intent is good to begin with. There might be a few that just don't quite get it. (laughs) Their mindset is so oriented around either just doing the task that they don't think about the relationship or just maybe they're too ego-centered, narcissistic. They're not worried about other people as much. And this all feels like a foreign language to them almost. But Mm -hmm. most people can get there if they're willing. So intent comes first, then the technique. But you can get good at this. And I'll say, let me just give one illustration of this in medicine. I know that's a big part of this audience, not exclusively. You got other people, but heavy in medicine. The good news is the medical professions come in already with the highest levels of trust of any profession. The highest trusted professions tend to be nurses and doctors, and then even pharmacists. So medical or higher trust professions, it's not a given that will happen, but that's a good starting point. And I think it's because it's so important. It's your life and you're coming in and most people, most nurses and doctors are good people trying to help. And so that's a good thing. I think if you could get really good at that genuineness and declaring intent, but also two key behaviors in medicine, but also in all of business and in life that are really good. If you could focus on empathizing and showing compassion. So that's listening and then showing that you care. That those two things of I'm willing to listen and to understand and to empathize which is I understand somebody, and then I show that I care about that person. That really moves you to the front of the line of saying, that person, I like this doctor, I like this nurse, I like this leader, because they listen to me and they care about me. Again, this is all back to the the genuineness that will help you. And if you establish that trust, then all your communication skills will just be enhanced because they trust you. Whereas You could not be trusted and be really skillful and smooth and in articulating, but if you're not trusted, people are diminishing, diluting, taxing what you're saying. There's so many parallels between medicine and business. You were talking about intent before. It's well known. The American Bar Association, in one of their conferences many years ago, I don't remember what year it was, put out a statement to the fellow attorneys and said, if a patient has a trusting relationship with their doctor, they are unlikely to file for malpractice lawsuit, even if prompted to do so. And that's the intent that's right there. If you trust your doctor, something might have gone wrong, but the intent was good. And you go, well, Dr. Orsini, he's a good guy. He didn't do it on purpose and they're less likely to sue. So there's that tax and dividend again, right? So there's, it's palpable. It's tangible. You can put an economic value on it. I've seen similar studies, University of Michigan, Sorry works where, you know, yep. doctors who have built a relationship and who apologize are sued about two and a half times less than those who don't. It's because that people, why do they sue? They sue when they're, they've been wronged and when they're mad. Mm-hmm. They tend to stay mad when they're owed an apology and don't get one. And sometimes the apology takes the sword right out of their hands. Now, look, I'm not giving legal advice. <laughs> Insurance companies don't want you to do it, but 
the whole point is if you build a relationship of trust, that dividend is a dividend in every dimension and aspect of that relationship, of a team, of a culture. And you can put an economic value on it. You can put a qualitative value on it. It's a happier way to live. The best relationships, the happiest, the most enduring are those in which people can trust each other. And in business, we have some HR people, a lot of HR people in the audience. And we had Dr. Larry Barton on a few months ago, I guess. And he is one of the leading experts in workplace violence. And he talks about the manner in which HR people separate someone from employment and things aren't working out. And if you can communicate that trust and communicate that you're a genuine person and things didn't work out, that person's less likely to come back and shoot the place up. And so this trust and this relationship, I mean, we can go on and on. It's just amazing. One of my favorite sayings is people follow not because they are told to, people follow because they want to. And I think that really goes well with your whole trust thing. My best bosses, as I said, I'd follow them through fire. So it really is intangible. So this has been great. I know you're a very busy man. I could talk to you all day long. You're so easy to speak to. This whole concept of trust, I think you said it in the beginning of your book. It's every aspect of our life. There's no aspect where trust isn't important, right? It applies everywhere. I think you call it the one thing, right? Yeah, I call it the one thing that changes everything. And it's not that you don't have to do other things. Leaders today, we have so much. Got to lead through change. Got to build teams. You need to build cultures of inclusion and equity. You need to collaborate. You need to engage. You need to innovate. All these things we're asking of leaders. And my point is, if you start with trust, where you yourself are trustworthy and trusting, and you build a relationship of trust, a high-trust team, a high-trust culture, then your ability to do every other one of those things, lead through change, build a team, be able to build a culture of inclusivity where we value our differences because we trust each other, where you can truly collaborate, where you can engage your people, where you can innovate, and create new solutions. All those other dimensions of leadership go up. They are multiplied by the high trust dividend just like they're diminished or diluted or taxed by a low trust dividend. So it's the one thing that changes everything, trust. It's right in front of us. At one level, we all know this from our own experience. Just the example you gave, Tony, of when you think of a leader who you trust, that you go to war for them, you have their back compared to someone you don't trust and who doesn't trust you, how they're very forgetful, he'll move on. Mm -hmm. We're all that way. We all know this. It's just The message I'm trying to give is that not only does trust matter because of high trust dividends compared to low trust taxes, it's also that trust is learnable from the inside out. Meaning we look in the mirror, we start with ourselves, we work on our credibility, our trustworthiness, we work on our behavior, including the behavior of trusting other people, and we model to others a high trust leader, and we build a high trust relationship. And if you can do it with one, you can do it with many. And you begin to build that kind of team and culture, and it's learnable as a skill, as a competency, as a team, as a culture, as a company. You go from good to great in trust, and suddenly you get all these dividends. And that's kind of the big idea that trust is learnable as a skill, as a competency through our credibility and through our behavior. And getting good at this matters for all the reasons we've discussed. That's the big idea. 
And that's why so many people and so many companies need your help. So how do people get in touch with you, Stephen, if they need your services? What's next on the horizon for you? Tell us a little bit about how they can get in touch with you and get some help for their companies, for their corporations, for their individuals. How do they get in touch with you and uh, what services do you offer now? I'd say the best place is to just go to our website, which is speedoftrust.com. We have a variety of tools there and videos and things you can look at, including there's some places where you can ask, hey, how do I bring me in to give a speech or what have you? We have training, we have consulting, we have tools, measurement tools, products, services. I've spoken to a lot of organizations all around the world, including healthcare, as well as government and education and uh, businesses, NGOs. So kind of the whole gamut. And we have others that do the same. So I'd say the website, speedoftrust.com was probably the best place. Plus there's some good tools, some videos there that you might find useful and it'd be a, a good place to start. And let me just say this in conclusion as we wrap up here, that we're living in a world of declining trust. where The trust is going down kind of all around us in our society, in 100%. our politics, in uh, media, in most institutions, we're seeing the trust go down in the U.S. and in most parts of the world, with some exceptions. And so the danger of a low trust world is that it tends to perpetuate itself and create more of the same, where we all become a little bit more careful, more cautious, more guarded, and we can find ourselves perpetuating a vicious downward cycle of distrust and suspicion, creating more distrust and suspicion, and everybody feeling justified in the process. Distrust is contagious. Here's the good news. Trust is also contagious and trust and confidence can create more trust and confidence. And you can build it one person at a time, one relationship at a time, one leader at a time. And each of us can kind of look in the mirror and start with ourselves. We don't have to wait on others. We can give to that person a leader that they can trust. You can be that kind of person for another by your credibility, your trustworthiness, and by your willingness to behave your way into trust, including being trusting. And so ultimately, while it takes two to have trust, it only takes one to start. I love that. That's fantastic. I love that. So thank you so much, Stephen. This has been a true honor to have you. It's been a lot of fun. I hope we'll get to speak again sometime soon. I'll put all those links on my show notes. Thank you again for being a guest. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for me too as well, Tony. And I really admire you and the great work that you're doing with this podcast and the other thought leadership that you're providing. Fantastic. If you enjoy this episode, please go ahead and hit subscribe and download all the previous episodes. If you want to know more about the Orsini Way, you can contact me at theorsiniway.com. My book is available. It's all in the delivery on Amazon and you can contact me through the website as well. So thank you, Stephen. That was incredible. And I will be in touch really soon. Wonderful. Hey, thanks so much, Tony. Wonderful to talk to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com.